Welcome to the Humane Roundup Podcast, where we share all the exciting stories about animal cruelty investigations, dangerous animals, and amazing rescues. Find out what goes on inside of animal shelters and all the current trends in the animal welfare industry. Now, here is your host, Daniel Edinger. Yo, yo, you know, I'm also always joined by Officer Bishop. What's going on? Hello. You know, every time I hear that intro, it just gets me fired up. I don't know what it is. (laughs) Uh, Maybe it's the music. It is a good intro. So, episode 64. Holy crap, are we that far into the year already? Like, where's 2021 going? (laughs) I don't know. I just want these years to be over as fast as possible. I don't know if that's a good thing to say or what. Well, Well, I mean, 2020 is kind of extending into 2021 here, so. Yeah, that's to say the least. (laughs) I just want to thank everyone for listening and tuning in again to 64. Remember, please check us out on social media. Subscribe to our blog. Don't forget the anonymous questions. I know we had a good one last week. Again, check out our Karanda giveaway. Stay tuned to the end of the show to figure out how to enter for that. And uh, yeah, let's, we got a good one today. Another we good do. one. I'm, I'm excited. We've been having a lot of really good uh, speakers join us, and I'm really excited. Yeah. And so that's the whole thing. And, you know, people who have listened from the beginning and seen the podcast kind of shift over time, you know, our, our, our goal is to bring good topics to the show, things that people, you know, can really, can really gravitate to and understand. So today we're going to have a defense attorney on and we're going to put them on the stand. It'll be fun. Um, <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I know they're muted right now. I'm probably like, what, what did he just say? So, <laughs> Uh, but before we jump into that, you know, we've we've gone a few weeks without talking about the animal of the week. And and that's my bad. I not that I don't want to do it. I just think that with some of the uh, programming we've had and just keeping the, the podcast on schedule, we just haven't had time to do it. But I just got a notice this week about a new giraffe. And I'm so excited to share with you. Uh, they recently discovered dwarf giraffes. Right. Think about that for a second. A dwarf giraffe. I would own one if I could, but I don't think I really can. They uh, measure about nine feet tall. <laughs> I don't know um, what what people okay. think of that, but normal giraffes are like twice the size of that. So, was this something that they they just found, or is this something yeah. that somebody created in a zoo? No, it was found in 2018. And oh. they did a little research on it, and they found that it was similar to um, humans that you know um, have have that same uh, gene. Dwarf. I don't know if it's a gene, yeah, dwarf. And basically, they have that same type of characteristic to their uh, skeletal system. So uh, it huh. is, you know, obviously not like there's going to be a, a hundred thousand dwarf giraffes running around. And they actually think <laughs> it's difficult for them to survive because they're, you know, more more likely to be prey because of their size and then they can't really reproduce it would be like imagining a chihuahua and a great dane mating uh it's just difficult Uh, for those two difficult but not impossible yeah there's that so (laughs) ladies and gentlemen our brief and short no pun intended animal of the week was a dwarf (laughs) giraffe so let's get into today's programming i think it's a, a good one again we have uh 
a really good show planned out. We we have Christina Bergston from the Animal Law Firm with us today, and then we have uh, an update from NACA, which we're going to have every month coming forward. And so we are going to introduce to you the owner of the Animal Law Firm, Christina Bergston. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and be on the hot seat. <laughs> you are on the hot seat. So if you wouldn't mind just starting off and letting people know, letting our listeners know uh, kind of your background and, and what it is that you do. Sure. Um, well, I'll try to be brief. Um, I guess, well, I'll just start with what I do. That's probably the most interesting part. Um, I handle anything animal related. So anything from pet custody to animal permitting. So if you want to try to get a dwarf giraffe, um, I actually can't help you because those are not definitely not allowed, um, at least in Colorado. But uh, um, so pet custody, animal permitting, um, dog bite defense, breeder contract disputes, puppy lemon law disputes. So if you buy a parvo puppy, I sue the pet store that sold you the parvo puppy. Service animal representation, emotional support animal representation, um, veterinary malpractice. So basically, if you have an animal issue, um, that is what our law firm helps people with. So you didn't mention it in the intro. And for everyone that's listening, uh, you are a private attorney here yeah. in the state of Colorado, yeah? Yes. And so you, did, so you didn't mention it in your intro and you also didn't mention it on your LinkedIn video that I watched not too long ago. Do you defend people who have been charged for animal neglect or animal cruelty? Sometimes. Um, it depends on the situation. I tend not to take those cases very often because... I'm an animal lover myself. So I do take those cases once in a while. And I take those cases when it seems more like the issue from my perspective, it has to do with government overreach than actual cruelty and neglect. Um, but I'm sure that's probably something you want to unpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to unpack that if it, and obviously <laughs> not getting into any specific case details. But and right. what it sounds like is you're an attorney with morals. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. Uh. <laughs> well, those were, those were good words to go in my mouth. So, yeah, I mean, I, I tried <laughs> I try as everyone else does to live a live by a moral code. Yeah. So if someone if I were to call you, if I was a just a citizen and I got charged with animal cruelty, you would listen to the case like you would allow that, right? You would say, let me see what, what you're working with and then make a decision based on the facts or what, what kind of motivates or moves you to that next step? That's a really good question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for example, if somebody calls me with an animal cruelty um, charges, then, yeah, I listen to them. I hear their side of the story and I kind of make an assessment based on what they're saying, whether or not I think that this is a case where the person was actually abusing or neglecting their animal. And then from there, I decide whether or not to accept or decline the case. So you mentioned earlier that uh, government overreach. Give me an example of what that would look like on a cruelty, like if you did get a cruelty complaint in your eyes, what that would look like. So I can talk about this one case because this case is already closed. Um, it closed last year. And it, this one case was an example, I thought of government overreach. It was an older woman 
who had her father die, who was even older. Um, and she had an elderly cat and the cat had a tumor on his front leg. Um, so the cat admittedly did not look great in photos, but in looking over the vet records, the cat was regularly seeing a vet, was regularly getting treatment. Um, the cat got outside while the woman was away for her father's funeral. And just in that few hours, the cat was outside. <clears throat> Excuse me. The cat got picked up by animal control in the jurisdiction where she lived, not in Denver. Um <laughs> <laughs> just for <laughs> well, what are you doing, Dan? <laughs> I, I, I don't know what she's insinuating. I don't really. Well, I'm just insinuating that. No, I, don't I know. Have... <laughs> um, and it was just really, I think, what happened. Maybe the government overreach wasn't isn't the best way to describe this case. I really think this was a case of personality conflict. Um, my client was very, very upset when she found out her cat was impounded and wasn't going to be released. So she probably wasn't the most. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? She just wasn't as uh, cooperative yeah she just wasn't as cooperative as she could have maybe have been and i think that that just escalated things um yeah you don't say <laughs> and that is definitely one thing that i i advise my clients when they call me before they've had contact with animal control is you know animal control these are people they're human beings doing their job so if you have an animal control officer come to your door you do have a right to remain silent but just be polite is the number one i place yeah. my clients be polite tell them hey my attorney told me that uh, that not to make a statement but i'm more than happy to accept the summons or or cooperate with, you know, whatever preliminary things you need to do. Some of them don't, and, you know, you can you can tell when it doesn't help. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, and then they, you know, so the, for this case, to go back to it, um, they, you know, they impounded the cat. I, I personally didn't think that impoundment wow. was really okay. appropriate in this case, given the cat was 18 years old. It had a tumor. Yeah, it just it wasn't doing well in the shelter. And so we ended up agreeing to humane euthanasia of the of the cat, um, just given how because I think he had been in the shelter maybe a week or so from the time that he got picked up until she came okay. back home from the funeral and figured out where he was and all of that. So wasn't doing well. So we ended up agreeing to humane euthanasia prior to the criminal case starting, um, just based on where the cat was at at that point. But, you know, in my, from my perspective in that situation, I felt like that was really, like, I would have liked for her to be able to have taken the cat home. The cat really didn't have much time left anyway. And she was just so attached course, and yeah. having lost her father at the same time, it was kind of like salt in the wound. Um, so that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about government overreach, where I just felt like it wasn't really an appropriate way to handle that situation. Things could have been was handled there a, a lot better. Was there a cost um, of care issue on that cat or? I don't think it was an, I don't remember that being an issue. I mean, there's always a cost, there's always costs of care. I think they might've, I really don't remember now actually. Okay. That just curious. Cause sometimes that gives you as the attorney and the pet owner an opportunity to at least challenge the impoundment and, and 
was there prob- probable cause? And then what, you know, could the animal have been released earlier than, than just being euthanized in the shelter? So very interesting though. And, and I get it. Sometimes these cases with older animals, those are difficult because you have personal, I think personal opinions or personal matters where people think that, you know, if I have an elderly mother, I'm not going to euthanize her. Right. And so when you take that approach to it, uh, sometimes people humanize these, these situations, my point, And when I do these investigations are, you know, not, I'm not saying we have to take the animal from you, but at least provide it something to allow it not to suffer. Right. And that's the important part. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, to your point about, we did challenge the impoundment and the problem is, is that the impoundment here, so this was in a municipal court. Um, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with municipal uh, ordinances outside of Denver, but in this particular jurisdiction, you, you had the forfeiture hearing before the criminal investigation, right? And you can challenge the impound then. The city had moved for forfeiture, so we were kind of challenging the impound and the forfeiture at the same time. But the burden of proof on the city at that point is not um, is not beyond a reasonable doubt, like in criminal cases, right? It's only the preponderance of the evidence. So, listeners, sure. that means like fifty-one percent. <laughs> and so, when you know you've only had the case as a defense attorney for a week, and the city has their evidence they've been accumulating for however long, and they only have to prove, they only have to convince the judge more likely than not that this cat was abused. Um, it, it's a hard position to defend with that amount of time and information. So that's why, again, we ended up, I mean, the, the end result was with the forfeiture portion of that was that they did allow the cat to go home for, I think, 72 hours. And then they were able to get a vet to come out to their home to have the cat euthanized. So it was the, okay. it was the most humane and kind way that we, the prosecutor and I could kind of figure out how to resolve this situation. Um, but yeah, it was just a sad, sad case. So let's, let's jump into really one of the topics that I, I had on the table for you today sure. and not to give away all your tricks and secrets. So you get a case <laughs> for a, a dog bite, let's say a, a pretty significant dog bite. I want to know what you look for as the defense attorney from the officer. What are you looking for to make your case? And you said for a less significant dog bite? No, a, a more significant. So it's, you know, it caused oh. uh, maybe less than serious bodily injury, but pretty significant. Well, what I'm looking for the officer, uh, that's a really good question. I mean, a lot. I mean, to be honest, a lot of times in dog bite cases, they're not the officer's report isn't really what I take into consideration very often because the officer nine times out of 10 isn't present when the, the incident occurs. So they're really just taking down what the, what the um, dog owner victim is saying. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's only so much in those sorts of situations, the officer's kind of limited in what they can or can't do. It's not, it's not like they had to get a warrant or, um, anything like that to investigate. So in, in those situations, the officer, the officer's report isn't as significant. In my opinion, the officer report comes into play more often, I would say in animal cruelty investigations. Um, 
you know, and then when I'm looking at a dog bite case, mostly what I'm looking at is I'm looking at how many times did the, the victim dog owner call animal control? What did they say from the beginning versus what did the officer find out when the officer spoke to my client? Um, so let's say, for example, the victim owner calls and says, oh, and in Denver, up until recently, pit bulls were banned. So they would call and say, oh, this pit bull just mauled my dog. Um, and the animal control officer comes out. And so in Denver, they would have to investigate and look at the dog, right? So they would knock on the door, say, hey, can we see your dog? Yeah, sure, you can see my dog. And it turns out to be like a black Labrador retriever. Um, you know? <laughs> so those are the kinds of things I look for in dog bite cases, depending on where it's at. Um, but yeah, most of the time in dog bite cases, the, the, the humane officer's report isn't as significant because they're just kind of taking down what other people observed. So let's let's bring this a bit further. Say I, I'm the officer for any case because I really want to get this answer out of you. Is okay. <laughs> I'm on the stand and you're cross-examining me. Okay, yes. what what is your tactic? What are you looking to do in that role? What are you trying to? Are you trying to get me to um, mistakenly say something? Are you trying to get me to just speak the facts? Are you trying to get me? riled up, angry, like what, what is your approach or what are you looking to show the, the jury at that time? That's an excellent question. I mean, me personally, I'm not the kind of attorney who goes in there and tries to make someone look stupid because if I try to make Daniel Ettinger looks stupid on the stand, what's going to end up happening is I'm going to end up looking stupid. The jury is going to be alienated by me. So my goal isn't really to make anyone look stupid, to get someone angry, to rile people up. My goal is to just say, you weren't, Mr. Enger, you weren't there, were you? Uh, no, I wasn't. Okay, no further questions. <laughs> I mean, that's usually, in a dog bite case, like what you gave me, my goal isn't really to try to do anything to discredit you because there's nothing to discredit you on. Sure. You're an animal control officer. You know more about animals than I do, I'm sure. Um, so me trying to make you look dumb in that sort of situation is only going to end up hurting me and alienating my client to the jury. Um, so I'm not, I, I know that doesn't really answer your question. Um, if an animal control officer gets called as an expert witness, then, okay. um, you know, then I'm going to try to say, well, you know, you're, I'm going to try to make you look like less of an expert than what the prosecution is is claiming and again that's really hard to do without alienating the defense in front of the jury um nine times out of ten in my experience i feel like the jury is going to believe the animal control officer and if i were in their shoes i probably would too um because you do this day in and day out um and i can't get up there and testify <laughs> even though i do this day in and day out to a different degree. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's harder to discredit an animal control officer. And I personally don't use that as a tactic. I, I'm more interested in, in trying to highlight to the jury, like in the dog bite situation, you know, that the, that the owner victim said, oh, this dog is a, is a raging Cujo in the neighborhood. And then try to show the jury, well, no, this person was just worked up and being very dramatic. My Focus. That you, never happens, by the way. I'm sorry? 
That never happens that people get worked up and are overdramatic when it comes to animals. <laughs> oh, gotcha. No, sorry. At first I thought you were being serious. Um, <laughs> I don't always pick up on sarcasm, but I can't see you. So, <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, that, that you're right. Yeah. I mean, nine times out of 10, like I, I, you know, the reports I read from are, are the owners just saying that, you know, Cujo was on the loose and they've eaten babies in the past, but nobody, everyone was too scared in the neighborhood to report these people, but enough is enough. I mean, that's usually the kind of thing that I read and it, you know, we've got like a Labrador mix that we're dealing with. And I mean, and I don't, I'm not a proponent of one breed is more um, aggressive than the, than another. That's just never been my experience in these cases. I, although Chihuahuas, I think, are the problem. <laughs> yes. Well, you just won our whole audience. So no matter what you say, <laughs> <laughs> after that, it's all good. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but hopefully. No, you spoke it just like an attorney would. That's fine. I expect that stuff. <laughs> So at least, you know, she's good at her job then, right? Yeah, she's good at her job. So <laughs> I, what I, before I like, seriously, before we end this interview, I need yeah. something from you. I need something more substantial and our listeners need it as well. So just tell me some mistakes I can make as an animal protection officer that would benefit the defense. Like what, what can I screw up? Cause I, I want to learn from that and I want our listeners to learn from that. So they're not making those mistakes. I mean, one thing that I would always, so in cases where I, I do find animal control officers make mistakes, it's that I just feel like they're not familiar with the rules of evidence in Colorado or in whatever jurisdiction that they're in. Um, there are certain rules of evidence with respect to videos uh, or audio recordings, um, you know, like security camera footage in a, in a part, in an apartment, you got to get the actual security camera footage. You can't just take a video of a video of a video um, or, you know, not getting a warrant. Um, I've had, I had a case in Lakewood where the, the humane officer didn't get a warrant. Um, and that's kind of a long story. And, uh, you know, but, um, but, but, you know, the, the, the humane officer didn't get a warrant and almost got the entire case thrown out and, um, Unfortunately, unfortunately, I was not successful in that, which I disagree with. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, nine times out of 10, I find that most of the, the constitutional violations that I run across from humane officers, there's usually the prosecutor can figure out some way to, to, to get around it. Um, but I mean, taking down statements, a lot of times, you know, the, the state, if, if I ever get an audio recording of a statement, which is pretty rare in animal cases, it, usually the written statement doesn't match it. And then that becomes something that I can use on cross-examination against the officer specifically. Um, that happens more often with police officers where jurisdictions where they don't have humane um, uh, animal control officers. So, I don't know if that, that really answers your question because most of the time ACOs don't have. Yeah, it does. Let's, I want to drill down on me videotaping a security footage. Why, why can that be thrown out or why is that inadmissible? Um, well, because there's this rule called the best evidence rule. And I, 
forget the number, but if you Google Colorado rules of evidence, best evidence rule, it will come up. Um, Is that the same pretty much anywhere in the country? Best evidence? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you Google the federal rules of evidence, it'll pop up. Um, But yeah, anywhere in the country, I I mean, you can't, you, the best evidence rule says that you have to have the original evidence, whether that's a document or a video recording or an audio recording. There's a case and I can't remember where it's out of, but there's a case that says, and most of the cases around the country back this up. They say that you cannot, an, uh, an officer cannot testify to a video that he saw because the video itself is hearsay unless you play it in, in the courtroom. Um, so if you have a video, you have to play the original video in the courtroom. Recording a video on a video it just leaves it open for me to attack the chain of custody and the validity of the video and where did it come from? And now you don't have the record keeper coming in to say, Oh yes, this was our video taken on this date over this, you know, method of recording stuff. Um, So this is the good stuff. This, it took us 26 minutes to get here, (laughs) but this is good. So uh, no, I, I really like this now. Okay. Let's say if you're in there, you're going to argue. If I show a video that I recorded from a security footage somewhere, you're going to argue that that's not the the best evidence. You're going to say that it, you're going to try to make that inadmissible or whatever word you use in lawyer. Yes. Term. yes. Okay, yeah. cool. That, that's good stuff. Uh, that's, that's what I want to hear. And our listeners probably appreciate that too. So if you're listening, try and sometimes it's a, it's it's difficult to get them. They're like, oh, I can't figure out how to download this video onto a flash drive. Can you just record it from your cell phone? Try to figure it out before you record it to your cell phone is what it sounds like you're saying. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with recording it to your cell phone in the meantime while you're figuring it out. I mean, this is just like not even me as an attorney. I mean, yeah, go ahead, get the record because it's better than nothing. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in court, well, ideally, if you have, if, the defense attorney is, is worth their salt. They're going to try to resolve this issue prior to court um, through a motion in limine. So you'll have most likely prior to court whether or not that video is going to come in or not. But um, yeah, you, from my perspective as an attorney, constitutionally speaking, rules of evidence speaking, yes, you're supposed to have the original form of the video. So and, and then also just violation of people's Fourth Amendment. I think, do you see that a lot in animal welfare cases or... No. Well, yes and no. I mean, from my perspective, with respect, the Fourth Amendment, like, there's a lot of exceptions to the Fourth Amendment from my perspective when it comes to the animal cruelty statutes here in Colorado. They can kind of seize. So a lot of the state, so the state statute and a lot of the municipal ones kind of allow seizures without a warrant as long as the animal control officer has reasonable or has probable cause to believe that the animal is being abused or neglected. Um, and I don't personally, not as an attorney, I don't really have too much of a problem with that because like I said, I don't take too many animal cruelty cases. So for the most part, I don't really think it's an issue. Um, there are some times where I think it's an issue where, you know, it's just, 
like I had a case in Lakewood where the animal control officer was fairly new and I think he was just excited. Um, it, it wasn't the best situation for the animal, the lady, the poor lady's house burned down <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a long story. And I know I've already taken up a lot of your time. And I just think in that situation, a, a warrant would have been the better way to go. Um, and in that case, yes, I felt like her fourth amendment rights were violated, but I can understand the kind of emergency exception basis for why warrants aren't typically required in animal seizure cases. Right. And we, you know, we often cite exigent circumstances, right? So when the animal's life is at risk and take like a dog in a hot car, for example, Mm -hmm. that's one that we deal with quite often in the warmer months. Now I can see areas and times where, you know, my, myself as an officer would even challenge the impoundment, like inside a parking garage where there's no direct sunlight and the animal's not showing any signs of distress. I would have an issue with that. And Colorado did pass that Good Samaritan law a few years ago, allowing people to break into vehicles to remove animals that are in distress. The problem with that is, can they, you know, are they trained or able to actually articulate what distress looks like in those animals? So that's, you know, that's, those are, situations that I think we would run into it with the needs for, I guess, emergent situations or needing a warrant. So. No, absolutely. And and with that law too, people are supposed to call law enforcement before they break the window. Yep. There's a, there's a full, full kind of checklist you have to do before you just go in there. So. Right. Yeah. People aren't supposed to go just breaking windows. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to chat before we let you go? I, I think this was a great, great segment. And, and honestly, we'd like to have you back. And, and maybe if you're into it, we can even dissect a case that, you know, may have happened on a national scale that we're not connected to, but we can just, you know, kind of go through and talk about what was done right, what was done wrong in that situation. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to be happy to come back. And I appreciate the opportunity to come on this morning. Cool. Bishop, you got anything for her? I I don't right now. I appreciate all the information that she's had for us so far. Um, I guess, honestly, I learned something because I would have never... I, I usually get a flash drive or CD or ROM or DVD or whatever with the video, but I guess I didn't realize that a video of a video could cause an issue. Um, so definitely learned something today. Yeah, thanks for putting that out there. And if you ever get a case that I do... Don't expect to see a video of a video. <laughs> awesome. No, well, Christina, sorry. is there, do you, do you have a website that people can check you out at? Uh, do you want them to go to your LinkedIn profile? Any of that info you want shared? Sure. Um, yeah. My website is theanimallawfirm.com. All one word, no underscores or hyphens. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I'm on YouTube. I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm not, I don't like LinkedIn. <laughs> You're on it almost every day. I tried it. So my goal in 2021 was to step my LinkedIn game up. Yeah. And you're on there doing videos like once a week. So you, you clearly like it. I know. I know it's an effective tool. I'm it just, is. I don't know. So can I'm, you leave us with, can you just leave us with your slogan and then uh, maybe we'll have you back at some point. Sure, I'd love to. We are fighting for the underdog. Thanks. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for everything you do too. Thank you. 
All right. That was awesome. Thanks again for, for having her on. And we all, you know, learning something from people that could be, uh, you know, across, across from us in the courtroom. So that's pretty cool stuff. And check her website out when you get a chance. As we continue the show from the National Animal Care and Control Association, Adam Ritchie. What's up, man? Hello. Good morning. How's everyone doing? We're good. Thanks for thanks for coming on, dude. We we really are looking forward to having NACA on every month to give a quick update. So we'd love to hear what's what's going on with NACA. Yeah, you know, there, there's a lot going on. Obviously, 2020 was a a very interesting year for the organization, and you know, we've been very public with what was going on with our financial situation and the ever changing scenario uh, that is, you know, facing NACA. So I'm glad to be here. Happy to answer any questions um, and talk about whatever. Cool. So, and I don't know how much detail you can get into the last thing that we saw, there was discussion about NACA, maybe joining uh, maybe, you know, having a partnership with another organization or standing alone. And there were some surveys. Is there any information you can kind of give out about that? Certainly there is. Uh, we actually just had a membership meeting uh, just a couple of days ago. And in that conversation, we were talking about a merger and we looked at a few different organizations and the uh, Humane Rescue Alliance uh, really kind of showcased as an organization that we could pair up with. And we started getting a little bit more involved with the membership, getting feedback to see what you mean the membership wanted, but not just the membership, but the profession as a whole uh, through those surveys. And we brought that conversation back to HRA and we've actually changed the conversation uh, with the Humane Rescue Alliance, with Lisa LaFontaine and her team. And we're no longer looking at a merger. What we're actually looking at is a strategic partnership where HRA and NACA would work under an agreement for a period of time um, with HRA providing some support services around administration, marketing, communication, development. And you mean those type of services that NACA has never really had, you know, NACA as an organization, um, for as long as I've been involved for a little over four years. And before that, as long as I've known NACA, it's really been a very small organization with the number of staff. And when you're limited on staff and everybody who's working uh, in the field right now as an officer is probably talking about staffing levels <laughs> and how limited you are when you only have so many people. And so this really allows NACA to look at a bigger picture as to what it can do within the profession knowing that it could have some support in some key areas that it's never had before, which would then allow some of those other initiatives um, that we may be looking at in 2021 to be fully supported to maybe, hopefully, you know, that's the plan is to um, fully realize, you know, what NACA can be as a supporting organization. And I've been vocal about it, even with you offline in some of the social media groups and not to not to do it in a disrespectful manner. I just, what you just explained is what I envision NACA to be. And so I think it's safe to say that there's no plans of NACA going away. It's just maybe retooling and coming back stronger than it was in 2020. Oh, I hope that's the plan. Um, that's the conversations that I've been part of. Um, and, and I think it can really be done. And I, I think one of the things that we are looking at as an organization from the board of directors to the executive committee and in some of the conversations we've been having with the profession and, and the membership is what happened in 2020 really brought a lot of things to the surface that had to be discussed, had to be head on. 
And, you know, we, we had John retiring at the end of the year. Um, our other team member accepted a job um, at a animal control agency here in Texas. And when we're like kind of looking at that, it really forced us to go and say, okay, here's our financial situation. Here's our staffing situation. And because the system was really tested, right? And like we, we, we got to the point where, you know, I'll even go and say like it, that the system was broken to be able to go now and actually reimagine what that could be and rebuild it from the ground up. When you have a program and you have a system in place, you're always doing tweaks and you're mm. always trying to do little adjustments to make it better. Where now we have this great opportunity to just go and say, what do we want it to be? You know, what does the profession want it to be? And what are those steps forward, which is going to make 2021, you know, really exciting. We're, we're, we're 10 days into this year. And, you know, the conversations that we're having on the board level is it's really exciting. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, for the profession, there, there's some great things that are going to be, you know, coming that way. And I think as an organization, you know, NACA is really starting to see where there's additional levels of support where it never really asks before. You know, we've had some great support from Maddie's Fund. Uh, we just were able to announce the commitment from PECO Foundation, which is committing up to $225,000 over the next three years. Great. Maddie's Fund has committed 150000 including last year and two years going um, forward for a total of 50000 a year. So, you mean, those levels of support are going to help us rebuild that foundation, which hopefully will lead to new and improved trainings, you know, new partnerships and, you know, a, a number of other programs if we can get the support there. That's great. And I've always, you know, NACA, when I first started this in this industry, NACA was like the, you needed your NACA certification, right? And like that was not only from a, you know, your organizational level, but for me and Bishop, I'll, I don't want to speak for you, but for me as an officer, like once I got that level two back then when it was those levels, I felt like, yes, I made it. Like I finally have become an officer. And so uh, the the plans for, for that, uh, that's still there. And, and I know that uh, there's opportunities to do that online today, right? People can go online and get certified. Is that how that works? Yes, we still have the uh, the online academies, and that you know that was you mean designed because getting in person training, right? You, you know, you, you know, Dan, you, you know, with LETI and the costs associated, and how many people have to sign up for a course and everything else to be able sure. to hold the course, and you know, there's a lot of you know logistics in an in person training, and you know, no training organization has really been able to meet the entire market need of officers out there because it's really hard to get in, you know, rural Wyoming um, to hold the training for four people um, just because of the costs that are associated with that. So there is a place for like that online training, but that's not really where NACA is going to stop. We're, we're going to look at how to do that in person. There's you know, great aspects about online training, ease of access, um, you know, still be able to get foundational information, but nothing's really going to beat that in-person training, you know, that peer-to-peer -peer conversation, having that instructor right there to, to share those stories, to really emphasize and make those really tight connections to the information that's being shared, to what you want the people when they leave to be able to retain. So, you know, we're looking into 2021 as to, you know, what that looks like. So going back to the online, and I'm right there with you, that peer-to-peer, -peer, that hands-on, that, you know, real, that kind of real classroom stuff that I know that you do when you teach doing some scenarios and stuff as well. Uh, but go that online is there are there specific dates or if i'm a listener and want to get certified can i just sign up today and start the class or do i have to wait until there's an online class 
Yeah, the great thing about the partnership with Justice Clearinghouse, because they're hosting the training, is it's, you mean, at an individual pace. Uh, once you sign up, you get access to the courses. Um, you have access to the courses for one year um, to be That's able great. to complete them. So that really allows, you know, someone to do it at their pace um, as they need to, be able to do it. No, I, I've got to hear of anyone taking a year to do it. Um, it. It's not that involved of a training course where it should be that. Um, but when you start looking at both the ACO one and the ACO two, you know, they're a little over 20 hours a piece. Um, okay. You know, they're really set towards, you know, foundational learning components. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot that they can take away, especially for, for new officers who are trying to get that first bit of information. Is there a test at the end? Yes. Um, okay. So there is an opportunity to have a proctored exam. Um, so that's what's utilized for the certification. That's awesome. That's really cool. Well, this is great stuff, man. And, you know, as we move forward in 2021, I know you, you and I talked offline and we're really looking forward to having you on every month to just give us updates on, you know, maybe the communication that you're having with with the board, being able to relay that. If anyone else from the, the board wants to come on, we're happy to have them. We just want to make sure this platform is available for, for NACA and for our listeners. You know, we, we, we take this job to be a voice for the voiceless. Right. And and we feel like this podcast can also be a voice for our people that are in this community that may not have the reach because they work, like you said, in a, in a rural area. So we're here to, to extend that reach to them. Do you, uh, Adam, do you ever see NACA doing anything as far as supporting states in getting their like a, a state organization together for their animal control just so that you might be able to have some fingers individually in each state to help bring in the trainings and things like that. So I think one of the things, you know, as we're looking into it is, you know, is, is there a place for that? And I, yes, I, I do think there is. I think that's a little further down the road than where the sure. conversations with NACA are right now. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, the, the conversations are about how do we support the profession as a whole? And looking and seeing what's the best way to be able to do that, you know, through state associations, they're a little bit closer to boots on the ground with the individuals be able to do it. NACA does have a role in supporting state associations. We've been doing that for years, but, you know, not every state has that state association and not every state association is fully engaged with NACA and NACA hasn't been fully engaged with those state associations as well. Right. So there's an ownership component from the organizational side. And you know, I fully see all of that happening. I also see, you know, NACA looking at, you know, more strategic partnerships with, you know, key agencies, you know, across the country to be able to put some other type of learning opportunities in place and also looking more at the structural aspects of how to run your animal control operations and to have like policies and procedures and to have programming components that NACA can support with to help create that progression, you know, that we're, you know, we're, we're looking to see. And I, I know for like, Dan, and I apologize, actually, I don't really, I, I don't know you. Um, so I, I, I apologize on, on oh, that. Okay. So I, I keep going to Dan because I've, I've known him for years. Um, sure. And, you, you know, he, he, he's someone who's heavily focused on the investigation side and, and very much involved on, on the, the community engagement aspects of it. And, and I think when you start looking at the disparity between how different agencies are handling and going out and responding, I think that's where NACA really has to be setting that foundational component, which is utilized by the states and regional and you know individual communities to be able to go and say, what are those priority calls? What should our officers be doing? And making that more standardized across 
you mean the profession because I can guarantee where I'm living here in South Texas and our local animal control officers, you know, seeing what they've done, having been on ride alongs and, and worked alongside them just a little bit versus what we were doing when I left city of Albuquerque. You mean they're night and day different. You know, mm, what we sure. held as a high priority in Albuquerque is they don't even do here. Hmm. Um, sure. And what they think is a priority, we didn't do in Albuquerque. Um, so it's a really interesting to be able to see such polar opposites and that huge spread of that dynamic really from one week to the next from when I left Albuquerque to when I started down here. Well, I'm hopeful. And actually, I think it's a good tease for the next time you're on is that we can sit there and, and even look at the uh, kind of the mission state or position statement NACA put out when the pandemic started on kind of how to prioritize calls. And if we can run through that list next time and give people, give our listeners give some insight on why we're saying this is a lower priority because we're right there with you on the things that we do. And, and Ashley and I kind of talked about that to open the new year here on the show what kind of, you know, how we handle calls, you know, how we handle a bite investigation to how we handle a dog at large and just putting that out there for maybe people to uh, feel supported on making some of those changes that they need to be more efficient. Cause that's, that's the reality is if we can be more efficient in some of the, the lower hanging fruit areas, then we can spend more time in those investigations and, and really put together a solid case. Yeah. And no, I, I, go ahead. Uh, I was just say, I'd be more than happy to. I love talking about priority systems. It's literally like one of my biggest pet peeves. And, you know, when people are like, oh, we don't have time, we don't have this, we have that. Well, then you really got to start narrowing up um, what you're doing. So you have the appropriate staffing to, to do the services that you should be providing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything we didn't chat about today that uh, you wanted to, to get across before we let you go? Yeah, you I mean the only other thing that's you know really recent with NACA, um, we did get out the position statement in regards to animal control officers be considered first responders. That's actually um, only one of what will be probably be a series over the next coming months of position statements. Uh, I know the other one we're working on right now is looking at um, public safety components, um, putting out a spec uh, another position statement um, around that, and we're also going to be looking at. Um, identifying animal control officers as a high risk profession. Um, so that way that can create some other um, conversational points. And, and, I, and I think this is where NACA's strength or, you know, will be in the future is that national conversation to start getting some legislative changes in the way um, we, we look at animal control officers from, you know, that, that legal aspect, right? Through that, you know, legal definition, whether it's at the federal and at the state levels. Absolutely. And we, so we appreciate you doing that. And we couldn't agree more with your position statement. And though we, we, we kind of all know what NACA is. Maybe some of our listeners are brand new and don't know. Check their website out. It's NACANet.org. Yeah. Yes, it is NACANet.org. We have NACATraining.org if you're just uh, interested in hit, hit, hitting the training side of it. Um, but you go there, you mean, if you want, you, you know, I'm not here to sell the membership today. Probably in a future conversation, I'll be pushing that a little bit more. Um, but, you, you know, c come out, you know, see what it's all about. You know, at the end of the day, we need the support from the profession um, to continue doing what we're doing. And, you know, 2021 is going to be a big year for NACA. Absolutely. And it's already uh, starting to take shape. Uh, there's a few Facebook groups. If you're not currently a, a member of those groups, NACA has a, it's like a NACA support and discussion group that's really taken off for this year. So we've been seeing some really good posts in there. Check that out on Facebook along with NACA's regular Facebook page too. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me on here. Great conversation. Look forward to the next time I get to be with you all. Yeah, we'll see you soon, man. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Thanks. Bishop, what do you think? Whew, that was a hell of a episode. <laughs> it was. We want to thank <laughs> want to thank both of our guests. They're awesome for taking the time out today to join us. Uh, make sure you follow us on Facebook and, and Twitter and on What's our other thing that we have? Instagram. Uh, Instagram, that thing. Uh, <laughs> that's a good segue too, because I wanted to talk about winning that Karanda dog bed, which isn't really hard to do at all. Just post something on Facebook or Instagram. And this is the last week to do it, yeah? Yes. Yeah. So make sure you post something on Facebook and Instagram with your pet and their holiday gear or anything you got them for, for the holidays. Uh, just a photo is all you need to be entered to win a Karanda bed and we'll announce the winner soon so and don't forget to like share and rate us <laughs> like share and rate us we're gonna try to get her on the show soon so i you know i she doesn't have a picture on her facebook page but sh she's out there i found <laughs> like, her we're gonna like share and rate us hey stay tuned uh coming up in the next few episodes we're gonna have the uh, a member from the casey pet project joining us so we're really excited about what they're what they got going on and, and having them represent uh you know their their state and city and and let us know how that's all working out with their new transition there so check us out on on the next few episodes for that for that one yeah we should be probably coming up here close to having another law discussion i don't know i'm not sure where our schedule's quite at <laughs> yeah we swing it nowadays it's fine Kinda. No, no one cares well uh. Episode 64 is in the book. And as always, Bishop, as always, you know that we keep it. Keep it humane. humane. There we go. <laughs> we'll get Good it work. one day. We, we did. We just got it there. So. Okay. Let me try to end this recording. Oh, that's funny stuff. Good stuff, yo. That was fun. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Humane Roundup Podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch with us? Visit HumaneRoundup.com. Email us at HumaneRoundup at gmail.com. Text us or leave us a voicemail at 916-241-3464. Or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Humane Roundup. Humane Roundup.